Well, good morning, everyone. As you come in and have your seat and take your seat, it is so good to have you here and with us this Thanksgiving Sunday. So hopefully you all had a blessed Thanksgiving. Time to uh, remind yourself of um, gratitude and Thanksgiving. And it's in Romans chapter one that Paul talked about one of the things that will happen in our days is that we will fail to glorify God and we will fail to be grateful to him. Those two things, fail to glorify God, which means to reflect him, to display him. And then he said that we will fail to be grateful to God. We lack gratitude. We're not thankful. And the reality is, I think most of us think that we deserve what we get, and we think we deserve everything good, and we fail to recognize that even the breath that God gives us in our lungs is, is a gracious gift from God. And every day that he gives us in Christ is a gracious day from God. So hopefully this Thanksgiving season, not only did you have some good food and good fellowship, but also you got time to, to thank God for who he is and what he's done for you. Um, on your seats, there are um, there's a sheet with uh, some announcements. I won't go through those. You have those. Please take those and read through those. Uh, there were several prayer uh, requests that came out uh, yesterday as well. I would encourage you to print off those emails and uh, keep them with you and pray uh, for those people and those uh, situations throughout the week. I would greatly encourage you to do that. I was thinking of a passage in Romans chapter 5 before we open. As we move into this Advent season, this Christmas season, believe it or not, four weeks from now, we are going to have Christmas. I was thinking of this passage in Romans chapter 5, verse 10. It says this, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now will we be reconciled, shall we have salvation by his life. You know, Jesus Christ came here to die, and we know that. We celebrate that on Easter uh, Sunday, Good Friday and Easter Sunday, his resurrection, his death and his resurrection. But he also came here so that you could be saved and reconciled to God. And what God had to do for us is he had to change something within us. We had to go from being a rebel against God to being a friend of God. And God had to go from being at wrath with us to being in love and, and offering us grace and mercy. He did that through Christ. So we just came out of Thanksgiving. Remind yourself that Christ lived and died for you so that you could be reconciled to God. And as we move to this Christmas season, remind yourself of the gift, this wonderful gift um, that Christ has done for us. Would you pray for me? So Lord, I do need them to pray for me, but I also want to pray with them to you. Lord, I thank you for the fact that you are a wonderful and kind and gracious God. Paul talked about in Romans that we lack gratitude to you. We are not thankful to you. We, we tend to think of all the things that we have in this life, and we think we deserve those and even better because we are such good people. Well, we're not, Father. We, we're enemies of you. We were bent away from you. We were hostile to you, Scripture says, before you rescued us in Christ. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming here and living a life that we could never live and dying a death in our place. 
I thank you for absorbing the wrath of your Father for our sins and that you've removed that from us. I thank you for the fact that we have the privilege of being an ambassador right now of reconciliation. We get the opportunity to be able to tell other people about the gracious gift of what you've done for us in Christ. Holy Spirit, today as we, as we sing today, as we pray today, as we hear your word today, Father, I pray by your spirit that we would be filled by your spirit, led by your word, transformed to look more and more like your son for the glory and honor his precious name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Every tongue confess He is Lord. Who can stop the Lord? And who can stop the Lord Almighty? 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 Who can stop 
God is the lion. Mighty to 
your regrets and mistakes Come today, there's no reason to wait Jesus is calling Bring your sorrows Bring your sorrows and trade them for joy From the ashes a new life is born Jesus is calling Oh, come to the altar, the Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, come to the altar, the Father's arms are open was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Sing, oh, what a Savior. Oh, what a Savior. Isn't he Sing Alleluia, Christ is risen. We bow down, we bow down before Him, for He is Lord of all. We sing Alleluia, Christ is risen. Again, oh, what a savior! Oh, what a savior! Isn't he wonderful? We sing Alleluia! Christ is risen. We bow down before him, for he is Lord. Bye. 
Lord, this morning, that's our heart's desire. It's to tell those around us, Lord, of the treasure that we have found. We wait for a little while here on earth, but then we will see you, Lord, face to face. As my aunt used to say, eternity is forever. And I think that drove her to that idea of this is temporary. I'm here for a little while. I blink and it's over. But eternity is forever. And that's both uh, amazing and horrifying at the same time. It's eternity with you, Lord, or it's without you. And Lord, we want to be with you, Lord. As Christians, of course, we know that's true. It's hard to feel that eternity sometimes, though, God. We're stuck in things. We bring our sorrows, Lord. We have these troubles. We have these issues. Great, small, all the above, Lord. And sometimes it's hard to imagine, Lord, that we would spend eternity with you. That there's an eternal God who cares for us that loves us, that sent his son to die for us. When we hit the mundane Lord of our lives, God, it's easy to get lost and really see what matters. And Lord, we know that you're calling us to come to the altar, to lay our lives down before you over and over and over again, Lord, to lay down our desires, our purposes, our successes, because eternity is forever. We're with you forever, Lord. God, we know that you cling to us, God. We know that you help us. You lift us up when we're struggling. Lift us up this morning, Lord. Help us to run the race, Lord, that you've already run for us, to follow along behind you, Lord. Jesus, we thank you that you died for us, rose again, and we thank you, Lord, that you left your spirit here with us to inspire, to lead, and to drive us on, God. Lord, as you hear your word this morning, would you drive us on by your spirit's power? We thank you for this time of worship and ask you to bless our hearing and doing of the word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Great to be with you this morning. I want you to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 6. Book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 6. And our time of study will begin in verse 10. Um, this portion of scripture marks a bit of a distinct shift in the theme or uh, kind of primary focus of the book. The first six chapters have primarily focused on Solomon's struggles in life without God. He calls that life under the sun. Uh, life seen purely from the perspective of godlessness or simply at the horizontal level. And we know from the first six chapters of this book that Solomon has gone on what we would call a hard run. Uh, he's run fast, he's run hard, he's kind of thrown everything, everything to the wind. For him, it's a bit of a prodigal uh, moment of his life. Some have speculated that today we would call it a midlife crisis. 
And he has found this run in life to be empty. In Ecclesiastes 2, at the conclusion of one of these segments or laps of his run, he said, so I hated life. For the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me and empty. It was like wind and nothing there after all the effort that he had put forth. And so he has experienced a lot of frustration, right? And that's kind of palpable as you read through it. And as we're preaching through it, uh, we realize that that can feel and seem at times very heavy and burdensome. And that's really what it was for Solomon. It All of that pursuit of pleasure and joy apart from God had left unhappiness apart from God. A decided turn comes at this point in the book of a bit of a, a bit of a homecoming, if you will, a return to a more Godward perspective. Finally, it comes like a breath of fresh air. And so now Solomon is forced to grapple with God as he looks at the raw realities of life. So the circumstances of life don't change by turning to God, but how we see them can change in a somewhat dramatic fashion. And two words will begin to come up, I think upwards of 20 to 24 times, depending on the translation, the words wise and the word wisdom. Okay, so they've been pretty much absent in the first half of the book, but as we work through the second half of the book, they become the emphasis, if you will, of the book itself. Today's text looks at the idea of things that we may consider bad and things that we may consider good. This week, we were on our family text group uh, hearing about a situation in the state of Missouri where our daughter lives. Our daughter has a three-year-old child and one of her daughter's best friends' name is Victoria. Victoria's about three years old. She has been largely healthy for all of her life. Recently went through what they thought to be an infection that led to failing kidneys. That's at the beginning of this past week. Hallucinating. Coughing up blood, tested for lupus, intubated for biopsies, difficulty getting out the vent, stayed in ICU for days, thrashing. Her dad died early in her life from cancer. My question for you this morning would be this. Is that good or is that bad? I don't know if you're like me, but my, I am very quick to have a response to that circumstance. And by the way, praise God. Everything through prayer that was being pursued medically uh, has experienced a dramatic turn uh, for what is very beautiful and good. I know a number of you that were in some of the Bible studies probably heard about that story. And there's been a, a very positive turnaround. She is not positive for lupus. And uh, the vent is out, and uh, she is doing so much better. And so we say, okay, good. <laughs> okay. Right? I mean, this, this is where we are, right? The raw realities of life hit us. Difficult things come, and we say, that's bad. And then there's a good turn, and then we say, that's good. Right? And we act like we're the all-knowing one who can declare and determine and, in a sense, even demand uh, what we want and certainly we would think that we would demand what is good. You know, today in this room, 
There are a variety of needs. There are a variety of unique circumstances, some of them spoken, some of them unspoken. Life is not easy and it is often uncertain. And a lot of times, truth be told, we're not sure what is actually good and what is actually bad because we have limited knowledge. We have limited understanding. So when we as believers in Jesus Christ face uncertainties and, adverse, and adversities in life, we must begin by understanding that we are limited. We must choose the way of wisdom and trust God with the outcomes. Okay, and this, this text is gonna walk us through three simple ideas. First, it's going to look at our limitations. It's going to look at the way of wisdom. And then it's going to encourage us to trust God for hope in those difficult and good seasons of life. It's a powerful lesson that we need to learn. So I'm gonna begin by reading verses 10 through 12 of chapter six. Solomon says this, whatever has come to be has already been named and it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his empty life, which passes like a shadow for who can tell man what will be after him under the sun look at the end of or look at the uh, end of chapter 7 verses 13 and 14 these are the bookends consider the work of god who can make straight what he has made crooked in the day of prosperity be joyful in the day of adversity consider god has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. And all of that to say that we struggle to know what circumstance in our life is actually advantageous and which one is a true disadvantage. We, we wrestle with that sense of discernment. And so the first thing that Solomon points out to us as we look at this idea of grappling with what is actually good and what is actually bad the first thing that Solomon puts the focus on is my limitations. And the very simple truth that only God truly knows what is best for me. And so that's why when we pray, we say, if the Lord wills, right? We submit our, our request slash demand to God with a qualifier. And that is Lord willing. We're trusting you, Lord, for the outcome, right? And that's where Solomon is in this. So, so verses 10 through 12 are, are limitations. Verse 10 is a fascinating verse. Whatever has come to be, that is whatever exists, has been named already, and it is known what man is. All right, and that is almost certainly, according to most commentators, a reflection back on creation. It's kind of a, a rough and succinct summary of the creation account where we read that, that, that God made light and he called the light day and he made darkness and he called the darkness night and he made man and he called him Adam from dust and he, and he, and he gave to man very specific tasks that he wanted to do. And the whole picture of that statement is simply that God is the creator and has sovereignly directed and named, has called his creation what it is. And then to man, he gives dominion. This idea of naming, 
that what exists has already been named is to say that God is exercising his right to control as creator of the world. It's fascinating, isn't it? And it is known what man is, meaning God has determined his plans and purposes for your life. Right? It's been named. It's been called out. And so verse 11 says, the more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? And the idea simply is this. It is foolish to dispute with God about his sovereign, providential, and divine purposes. And the idea simply is this. It is much better to surrender to God. And this is what Solomon's learning, right? He goes out on a run, self-directed, and he finds it to be, at the end, nothing is there. And then he comes back to a center point. And standing before God, he acknowledges that he has limitations, that his, his, his rash overflow of words really wasn't, at the end of the day, helpful or beneficial. I think most of us can relate to that. Sometimes we get very wordy in circumstances that stress us out, right? We don't rest. We, we, we kind of rise, right? And we want to we talk it through and speak it out. I think Solomon would caution us on that and say that it is foolish to dispute with God. The more words you express, the dumber you look. Okay? And I think most of us can probably relate to that. I I've had numerous uh, circumstances where I was so sure and so verbal and so dumb at the same time, right? It's foolish to dispute with God because I have pronounced limitations. I have very obvious limitations. Verse 10, I can't change what God has named. That means I have limited control. Verse 12, who knows what is good for man while he lives his few days of his life on earth? Who, who amongst humanity knows what is best for Tim Hoff? I know many of you probably think you could help me a lot, okay? But who really knows? Who knows? Why do we dispute with God instead of accepting from God? Instead of saying this circumstance that Victoria is in is bad. Why don't I say God worked through this circumstance? Give me a heart to trust an all-powerful and sovereign God as opposed to trying to be God in the circumstances. Solomon says that would be wise because I often misread circumstances. I often call things bad and good prematurely when I really lack understanding. And then Solomon puts an emphasis on this. He says... Who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his life. That is talking about the brevity of life. And I can tell you this. At 62 years old, with grandkids visiting the house, I look back and I'm like, what happened? Right? My daughter is pregnant with her fourth child. She's been walking around our house this past few days on display. Okay? Uh, she's in her, I think, Fifth or sixth month, okay? And she's, she looks great, but it's just like, that was my daughter. Now she's a mom, right? And, and Solomon just wants us to understand we lack control, we have limited insight, and we have limited time. It's why Jesus says to us, doesn't he? Take no thought for tomorrow, for your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. Don't put out a lot of stress trying to figure out how bad things will be tomorrow because you may not even be there and you won't care. 
this idea of brevity. I have limitations, which means this. Only God truly knows what is best for me. So it would be wise to do what? To submit to God and admit my limitations. And say, God, I trust you, but I struggle doing that. Right? That's, that's my constant battle. My life is full of stressors that perplex, right? Things like career choices, things like moving, or for some of the young people, what college am I going to go to? Thinking about my dissatisfaction in my current job and thinking it'd be nice to have a, a different job and work for a different company. Medical challenges, aging. Care for kids who become teenagers. Marital struggles, financial stressors and questions. Am I going to retire? Which car should I buy? Where should I live? That's why I envy toddlers. Because I see them doing their cruise and I think to myself, there's nothing on their mind. Right? And I can't, I can't remember waking up in bed with nothing on my mind. And so I stress because I think I know better when I really should be in that moment surrendering to God, saying, God, I am limited. I am finite. You called it into being and I should trust you. You know what I am and I should trust you. Get a grip on your limitations and confess that only God knows what is best for me. It's interesting that the question at the beginning of verse 12, who knows what is good for man? Right? Who knows what is, and the idea of good here is that which is advantageous better or even best okay so that's kind of where Solomon as he looks at his limitations he ends up at this who knows what is best for me here's what Solomon would say I've tried a whole lot of things on his run in chapters one through six Solomon has tested everything with greater capacities than you and I could ever know or have and he says there's nothing there so if you've tested all of life and you come to the conclusion that there's nothing there, then you're faced with a question. What is best for me, right? And that's the question that he asks, and it's the question that he then answers beginning in verse 1 of chapter 7 going down through verse 12. I want to work through these, and this is kind of a, it's not an exhaustive list about what's best for us but it is a representative list. And what it really is, is this. It is advice from God on to how to have a good life. And you're gonna understand what I mean by that in a little bit, okay? I'm not talking about that prosperity, false type gospel approach. But how can I have a life that, that based on living by wisdom, and that's really what these are. You'll notice in your translation that these all of a sudden come into these poetic type statements. You see that? Because he's going to give Proverbs here. Solomon wrote a whole book of Proverbs, and here he gives a little condensed list of Proverbs that help me to understand, not exhaustively, but representatively, what is best, how I should direct my life in spite of the, what appears to be good and what appears to be bad. How do I best navigate life? And so my need, so I see my limitations in 10 through 12, and in, in verses 1 through 12 of chapter 7, I see my need. My need is to choose wisdom. And he's going to say this is better than this. And what does that help me to do? It's how, it helps me to evaluate to weigh 
which direction in life, which circumstance in life, which decision in life is actually good or best. Okay, and that's really what wisdom does. Wisdom is often not about that's wrong and that's right. That's more like commandments and rules. Wisdom is more about I could do this or this. Question, which is best? And what Psalm is going to try to do is to help you understand what is best. My need is to choose wisdom. And he's going to help me to do that. The word good and better will be used 10 times through this section of 12 verses. So let's, let's begin by looking at this. These proverbs that help us to get the most out of life in a way that glorifies God and leads to fullness. Verse 1, he says this. A good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death than the day of birth. All right, now I'm going to give you the summary of it. Reputation is better than perfume. Okay? And the question you have to ask is, why or in what sense? Okay? So reputation is the idea of a good name. Meaning that when your name comes up, people have positive thoughts. They're affirming that if you're selected for leadership, people, people have an affirmation in their heart. There's something about the life that you've lived that gives you some credibility with people. In contrast to that, Solomon says, a good name is better than precious ointment. And why is that true? Because perfume, though it is pleasing, has limited value. You spray it on in the morning and by the end of the day, what happens? You don't smell as good by the end of the day. All right, people complimented you through the day, and by the end of the day, you're kind of like, hmm. <laughs> you have a distinct uh, understanding that something changed. Okay, so it, it wears off, and you need another splash of something uh, like Chanel. Uh, they have one called Sauvage, and I know I'm correct on that because I looked it up. Okay, six ounces will only cost you 200 bucks. Okay, I think that's horrifying. Okay. <laughs> I, I don't wear cologne. Please don't buy me any. You can make suggestions, okay? But here's what Solomon's saying. You, you put on perfume and it wears off. Its value is limited, even though it may be incredibly expensive. But a good reputation will cost you nothing monetarily. But it can change everything. You can't buy a good name. Okay, and so you can buy a, a, a good odor, but you can't buy a good name. And then he says, and the day of death is better than the day of birth. And this is really interesting. A birthday is a, a, a day of great joy, but there are lots of unknowns. In contrast, at death, we know the life is settled. And if the life ended with a good reputation, that is an unalterable reality. Okay, whereas perfume passes, reputation that is affixed at death cannot change. And so it is something to value. It is something to celebrate. Reputation is better because it lasts. That's the contrast first. So watch your life. Be a person of integrity and character at all times. Consistently, it's better than, than putting on something that makes you seem like something that you actually are not. It's not natural. It's a cover. Verses two and following. 
it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. And you, you may be able, if you just think about that for a moment, to, to kind of come to a conclusion of what is, what is being said there? Why is it better to go to a thanks? Why is it better to go to a funeral than it is to go to a Thanksgiving dinner? Because I don't know about you guys, but I had a good time on Thursday. Okay, that was a good day. Why? Because I knew that there was going to be good food and lots of it. All right, and that lasted until yesterday, right? Because those leftovers, that the lingering benefits of that, which that idea of a party or a holiday seems so satisfying and gratifying. And Solomon is certainly not saying in this that parties are bad, that holidays are, 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 are in a sense deceitful. It's not what he's saying. But they're not of ultimate consequence. Does that make sense? I mean, the holiday's great, and it's good to get together and to kind of yuck it up and rah-rah and have a good time enjoying life together. But at the end of the day, very little, please understand how I say this, very little of lasting, life-altering substance comes on holidays. It's just the way it is. It's a time to get together, to celebrate life, to enjoy things, which is fine. And we are biblically encouraged to do that. But Solomon says it's better to go to a funeral home for Tim Hoff than to the Hoff's house on Thanksgiving Day. How can that be true? I think the answer is this. Death gets my attention. It's not because funerals are preferred. Okay? And, and be careful to call a holiday good and a funeral bad. Because the funeral can cause you to reflect and contemplate in ways that you never would on a holiday. It provokes a deeper reflection, a deeper thought about life and the meaning of it and why I should live it. And how it can best honor God. Whereas parties can become very distracting. Death gets my attention. It's interesting that we in the West celebrate birthdays and mourn death days. Interesting, isn't it? Psalmist says, don't be so quick to be sad on a death day because it may teach you lessons that can change your life. A wise person sits at a funeral and says, what will my life be worth at the end? A wise person sits, contemplates, and makes appropriate adjustments in light of the certainty of his own demise. The psalmist said this, he said, God, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to take the days that you give us and to count them out. And, and, and Solomon called them what in verse 12 of chapter six, our few days. So if I have few days, they, those days, literally the word opportunities could be put there. I have few opportunities. So think wisely and invest each day in a way that matters. Funerals will cause you to do that more effectively than a holiday, okay? So a funeral is better. Verses three to four. He says this, sorrow is better than laughter. And, and the idea here of sorrow, and just clarify this for you, it is sorrow related to the loss of a loved one. We, uh, Fran runs a ministry along with Laura called Grief Share, okay? And really the idea here is grief, 
that, that experience during a season of loss because Solomon is not writing to the dead. He's writing, he's writing to the survivor, helping them to understand that there is in this grief something that is better than laughter. Now, is Solomon saying that comedy and laughing is sinful? Because if it is, I am an egregious offender, okay? I love humor, love hanging out with people, love joking around, but there are times where you gotta shut it off and deal with life. See, sometimes we use laughter as an anesthetic. We use entertainment as an anesthetic, as something that blunts the pain, blunts the reality when the reality is what we desperately need. Laughter is preferred, and that would be true, absolutely. But grief confronts and forces contemplation. It, he's not saying it's better to be sad in a house of mourning, but it is a better opportunity to learn. Okay? So the next time you're in that setting, I was at, uh, recently at, at, at two funerals for people that are near and dear to my heart. Uh, prior to their passing. Butch Clemens is one. He is the father of one of my closest friends growing up. Went to his funeral and I saw his children, his grandchildren, and his great-grandchildren reflecting on a life well-lived. On that day, that pain, that grief, it, 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 in an irresistible way, caused them to reflect what is life. What is man? What am I? What is the purpose? What at the end of the day will end my life with something that's there rather than emptiness? And for that reason, death is better. My other friend, Glenn Clemmer, guy that did all the construction work at my dad's business when I was a kid, uh, seven years older than me, died at 67. His life went into a downward spiral at 36 years old. He was diagnosed with a severe kidney disease, went through two kidney transplants, for 32 years that we would say we're bad, lived a life that glorified God. He didn't resist, he didn't resent, he didn't challenge God. He accepted it, prayerfully asking for deliverance from God. And when God didn't bring deliverance to say, God, I'll count it good. I receive it. Do your work in me. And I have to tell you, that most of the years that people talked about at his funeral were not the first 35 years. It was the last 32 because they saw what that man, Glenn, was. They saw the substance and the value of his walk with God in the midst of bad, hard things from a human perspective. That's why that's better, folks. That's why laughter is fine, it's preferred, but it is not ultimately the best influencer of my heart. Solomon says, choose to be wise in seasons of grief. The apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6.10, we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Think about that. Paul says, yeah, life's hard. And if you know Paul's life, you know that the struggles were immense and constant and persistent. But Paul's testimony at the end of his life is, we are sorrowful, but always rejoicing. 
You see, grief had brought clarity. Paul would say in Philippians 1.23, he had come to this conclusion, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord so that the day of death for a believer is what? It's really my best day. It's the day that my faith in my head and in my heart becomes sight. It becomes a new reality. It becomes tangible and touchable and I can experience it in a greater way in God's presence. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 16, in your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, pleasures that last forever. So as I sat at Glenn's funeral, I thought of Glenn in God's presence and thought, wow, what an awesome thought. Reputation settled. Well done, good and faithful servant. Verses five and six. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. Now what's the thought here? It is simply this, that wise critique is better than applause. You know what my problem is? I love applause. <laughs> I crave applause in my flesh. I want people to honor me, to respect me, to value me more than I want to know the truth at times. Isn't that pathetic? That's why when somebody has something on their tooth and they need someone to tell them, but because you're in front of two or three other people, you're struggling if whether I should tell them or not. You understand what I'm saying, right? Because if I tell them, they might be embarrassed. I know how people respond to criticism because I know how I respond to it. Solomon's advice is amazing. Wise critique is better than applause. Why? Because flattery, verse five, the song of fools, the idea of that is, is flattery. It's lies that make you feel good, but the lies lack substance. They're untrue. They may make you feel better about yourself, about your abilities, about your talent but it doesn't change reality. So my parents, when I played soccer in high school for the brief three weeks, till my dad found me a job, uh, those three weeks goes, hey, you're good, you're doing good. Truth is, I'm the slowest kid on the team, right? And I'm wrestling with this reality. He's heaping praise, why? He wants me to feel good about myself, but it's not helping, why? It was flattery, it lacked substance. So Solomon says in verse six, that that kind of praise is like the crackling of thorns under a pot. So is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. What is Solomon saying? If you put twigs under a pot and light them on fire and expect the pot to heat, you're a fool. Because they're going to burn up like that and there will be no lasting effect. That's how flattery is. That's how false praise is. So if you're the recipient of it, stop listening. And if you're the giver of flattery, stop lying. Stop trying to make everybody feel good about themselves when they really need to hear the truth that can change their life. Okay, pet peeve. It's one of the problems with giving trophies to everybody. Okay, understand. If you act like everybody won and everybody did the best, you're a liar. 
You're a deceiver. It's flattery. It's not true. It may make them feel good temporarily. It does not make them a good athlete. And it does not make a Christian a better person to praise them when they really need critique. And so Proverbs, Solomon kind of rides on this theme. He says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. So when you praise someone in a way that is untrue, you are giving them the kisses of an enemy. You are not their helper. You are their opponent. Because you're giving them false courage. And false courage will take them into battles they can't handle and they will be destroyed. It is helpful to have people that speak the truth into your life if you're willing to listen. Here's what Solomon's saying. It's better to receive a critique that hurts than it is to give praise that is false. And mom and dad, employer, be careful. Be careful. The wise in this context invite correction. They welcome discipline. They seek advice because they know it protects them from folly. Okay, so as a parent, raise your child with truth, but don't truth in a way that hurts or damages, truth in a way that heals and picks up. Give helpful direction. Don't praise them if they want to become a concert pianist and they really don't get it. It's, it's not helpful. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Flattery deceives. Verse 7. Contentment is better than money love. Interesting verse. He says, surely oppression drives the wise into madness. And a bribe corrupts the heart. When he uses the word oppression drives the wise into madness, oppression is the idea of bribes, extortion, or blackmail. They're the way that we tend to get things quickly. Okay, it's how we bypass the traditional path of hard work and honesty and integrity to get to the goal of being more financially stable. It promises a quick end around, a trick play that you can use. It's not the real game. It's the lying false game. But the outcome can be the same. But it, in the process, what happens? Your soul, your heart, your moral compass is damaged, if not destroyed. And you, you destroy who you are and who God intended for you to be. Right? Same thing is true in the context of, uh, of school and, 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 and a child taking a test and passing on the answer to the test to someone else thinking it will help them. It doesn't help them. It destroys them. It's a lie. I watch a show occasionally called American Greed because I'm amazed at how stupid people can be. I'm, a, I'm amazed at how stupid deceivers can be. I'm also amazed at how stupid investors can be. In the last couple of weeks, we've seen the collapse of a company called FTX. It's one of those cryptocurrency companies. Billions have been lost. And the question is why? The new CEO of that company used to be the CEO of Enron. If you remember the company Enron, when that company crashed, this is the, let me, let me get this right, okay? 
the new CEO of the company is the guy that replaced the CEO of Enron when it crashed. They sent in a new CEO to rescue the company, to straighten things out and to restore integrity. Well, the same thing happened with FTX. Billions lost, and, and if you look behind the scenes, you'll find, as is always true, there is a ton of salacious stuff going on. Why? Because love of money never travels alone. It is always destroying and corrupting and ruining the heart of the person. Unavoidable connection. Here's what the CEO, former CEO of Enron, now CEO of FTX said after he dug into the troubles of FTX. He said, never have I seen such a complete absence of trustworthy corporate controls. And that's the guy that took over Enron and helped to fix that, which was a mess. And as he reflects on this new position that he sits in, in this chair position, his response is, I have never seen such unfettered carelessness with the resources of others. Right, and he bemoans that fact. And so Solomon will say in Proverbs, better is a little where love is than a stalled ox with hatred. Because when you get into that life of lying, you create hatred and devastation. And Solomon says, it, it's better to have love than it is to have a, a fat steer in the barn that makes you look wealthy. That's the idea. Using agricultural terminology, you could use like there's a Lamborghini in the garage. Okay, it's better to have love with a little, truth with a little, integrity with a little than to have a lot that is a living lie because it literally will gut your heart and your soul. That's why Paul said to Timothy, the love of money is the root of all evil. The need for and desire for more can ruin your life. Says, so what is Solomon saying? If you're going to live wisely and avoid the devastation of an empty life, keep an eye on your relationship with things, with resources, and with money. Verses eight through nine, as he kind of leans into the end of this list, he says, better is the end of a thing than the beginning. And what that literally means is hindsight gives me an advantage, right? Have you ever said, if I knew blank, I would not have done blank, right? You ever done that? You bought a car and as you're driving at home, cause you didn't need to test drive it. You're good. And you're driving at home and you hear strange sounds that don't sound like the motor running, right? It sounds more like other things, like things falling apart, right? Hindsight tells you, oh, you know, if I knew that, okay, I wouldn't have done that. Does that make sense? That's how Solomon kind of sets this up. Uh, the less unknowns there are, the less stress there is. Okay? The more I know about what's going on in my life, the better off I feel like I am. Second half of verse 80 says, the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. This is very interesting. The person that is patient is really someone that is prone to deliberation or process. Okay? The, I, I have a problem, okay? My problem is I don't tend to be a process person, okay? Better known as ADHD, okay? I don't tend to be process, okay? A person that deliberates and is slow to respond, is thoughtful, is understanding of the big picture, is better 
than the proud in spirit. See, the, the proud person tends to think, what? I got this. I can make this decision. I, 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 I tend to be a little bit um, impetuous, okay, for lack of a better word. And when you are impetuous, you tend to jump at things without thinking it through, without deliberating. And Solomon's saying to Tim Hoff, that is not a wise approach to life. And, and the school of hard knocks is a good school to learn in, right? So I've had to go through that personally where that, that impetuousness, that impatience tends to get me into places that I don't want to be in. Solomon is saying that patience is the mark of wisdom. It's better than pride. And I've often asked myself, my wife is sitting in the front row. I've said this to her numerous times over the last four to five years, I would guess. I've said to her, why did God have the most impatient person on the planet? Marry the most patient person on the planet. And my wife says to me, I've been praying about that for years. <laughs> you can ask her, if she's driving the car and I'm the passenger, it is the dumbest thing we ever do, okay? Because I will, she is so patient to the point of frustration, <laughs> right? Because that's honey, when I do that, I'm trying to smack the person. I'll wait, we're on 57, still stop. Because she's so full of kindness, she can't help herself. And it drives me crazy. Okay? Does that make, who's the fool in that picture? Me. The person that's like hair triggered, quick to respond, always got a response, always knows better, never deliberates. Right, this is convicting. And Solomon's concern is much deeper than the minor irritations of road rage. His concern goes a lot deeper. Because this level of impatience really is a distrust in God himself, isn't it? When I demand, instead of waiting on God, I'm in a dangerous place. I've made God unnecessary, if not irrelevant, and Proverbs tells me that the fool says in his heart, God is not of consequence. God does not have say. God is not in control. Pride leaves, leads to a devastating progression. Impatience is fueled by pride. I am intolerant in seasons of delay. So in anger, I demand results. Pride makes me self-confident deaf to advice and easily triggered. And the anger that flowed blinds and deafens to what I need to hear most. And the result is that my life becomes full of relational wreckage. At the end of the day, anger aims to control and exposes failure to trust God. It can ruin everything. And so we need to be so careful. If you are prone to pride and have an outflow of anger as a result of that, I beg you, I beg you to get help with that because you don't even know how badly it is destroying the people around you. you you're, you're, you're driving the boat so fast that you don't see what the wake is doing to those around you. you don't, you're totally unaware because that's what pride does. It causes me to focus on my future and doesn't truly care about those around me. May God help me 
and help us. The last part of verse 9, look at what Solomon says. He says, for anger, so don't become quick in your spirit, in your heart, in your very being, to be prone to anger. Anger lodges, lodges in the heart of fools. If you're prone to be angry, then anger lives in you, and you are a fool by God's definition. And so am I. It is the distinguishing mark. And the warnings could not be stronger. Proverbs 14, 29. People with great understanding control their anger. A hot temper shows great foolishness. Folks, they're, 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 Solomon does not equivocate. He doesn't struggle with getting clarity on this issue. He is very clear. Anger is dangerous. It is fueled by pride which starts with impatience, a, a subtle sense that leads to a stronger sense that leads to a devastating sense. It ruins everything. People with great understanding control their anger. James 1, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Ephesians 4, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. And it's interesting that verse 10 then drops in on the end of this. I didn't know where to put this first, but I want you to hear what it says. Do not say the former days were better than these. Do you ever have a tendency to gripe? You ever, ever have a tendency to think that things were always better when they're behind you? I say this to my parents sometimes because they're older and they do have a lot of insight and they've lived their lives and I respect them. But sometimes I say to them, I wouldn't want to raise my kids in the world that you seem to despise. Meaning it's never been this bad. And I think Solomon takes exception to that. See, there's a sense of pride that thinks that it was better because I'm real, I really have forgotten what it was like. <laughs> and I tend to gripe and complain, which really is what? It's dissatisfaction, not with the next generation. It's dissatisfaction with God himself, who is sovereign over and in control of all and providential over all things. So be careful. Patience is better than pride. And then 11th through 12th. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Those few days, a, a wise approach values and gets the most out of those few days. And it's interesting. Wisdom is better than an inheritance almost certainly means it's better than inheriting a piece of land. Because in the ancient world, the means of passing on generational wealth was always the family property or the family farm. And it, 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 what does it do? It gives a sense of security. It gives a sense of stability. And it gives opportunity. That's all true. And it's not to be despised. Right? The Bible tells us a, a, a righteous man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. It encourages generational help. It's not, not saying that that's not important, but it is saying that the advantages of financial resources of land 
are temporary. They're not ultimate. Does that make sense? Man, would you not rather have your kids deeply in love with God with a reasonable paycheck than being wealthy and have forgotten God? But enough said? Okay, that's what I want for my kids. They need to know that money is alluring and it is deceiving and it can disgrace. It can ruin me. Wisdom with it is better. In verse 12, he says, the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Wisdom gives me a better life because it enables me to live more wisely and deal with my resources and my affairs more effectively. But Jesus gives eternal life. Do you see? So a wise use of your resources is likely to give you a better life. But knowing Jesus Christ gives you eternal life. So there's always this need to balance and to contrast, to find out what is good and what is best. Okay, so let's look at the last three verses real quick. Solomon said, or two verses, Solomon says, consider the work of God. And, and then he, he, he throws this out. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? That is a rhetorical question, okay? When I say rhetorical, meaning you could actually make it a statement. No one can make straight what God has made crooked by his design. If God has a purpose in leading you on a road that is crooked, don't try to find a road that is straight. It is his providence. It is his design that he is working out. And, and the, the simple thought of verse 13 is you can't resist his purposes. Remember from the verses at the end of chapter six, he is the creator. He named it and he knows what is in man in the short days of his life. He knows, I can't pull it over on him. So what should I do? Live wisely, adopt these basic principles and then add a lot more as you grow and as you go through life. But at the end of the day, realize that my hope is found in the fact that God is sovereign in my life. Not in my good decision-making, not in the good that I go after in life. No, my ultimate hope is found in God himself who exercises his providence. That is this. He, I say, I want to go here. I want this to happen. And God says, I want me to go here, then here, then here. Because I have things along the way that I'm going to teach you. Folks, do you realize that when God led the people of Israel out of Egypt, he did not take them on a short journey to the land of Palestine, though he could have. He led them through the wilderness because the shortest distance between two points is a zigzag in God's kingdom. He did not take them on a two-week journey to the land of Palestine. He led them for 40 years through the wilderness and taught them who he was. Help them to understand who they were, to see their pride and impatience. And then taught them his truth through Moses, wisdom that could change their life, and then led them into glory. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> this is the way of God. Consider the work of God. Look at the work of God. You can't resist his purposes. And then verse 14 is fascinating. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, complain. Is that what he says? What does he say? Consider. 
in the day of prosperity? Find joy. Thank God. That's what this holiday is about, right? In the day of adversity, consider. Stop. It's like Selah in the book of Psalms. Stop and think about this. To look at, to learn. That's the idea of, of, of setting your heart on something, of considering it, of contemplating it. That both prosperity and adversity, good and bad, are both from the hand of God. So be very careful when you hit a situation like little Veronica was in in Missouri to say, oh, that's bad. No, go to God and say, God, I trust that you will heal this little girl. And give me insight into your purposes. Show, show that dear mom who lost her husband when this little girl was young. Show her your goodness in that hospital. And so we prayed that God would intervene and that God would work and that he would do good. James 1.12 helps us with this, doesn't it? It says, count it all joy when you enter trials of many kinds. Embrace it. Say, God, I'm here and you're here. And with you here, nothing can happen to me that is outside of your control because I trust in you. I'm going to give you a word, theological word. I'm going to trust in your providence. Here's the definition for that word. Providence is the power to sustain and to guide to our destiny. Providence is the power of God to sustain me and to guide me to the destiny that he has for me. And in this text, that providence is exposed in two things. It's exposed in things that are prosperous, and it's exposed in things that appear to be a disadvantage. You know what Solomon says? Both are from God. Folks, this is hard territory for us. That prosperity that God gives is from his hand. And we're all, yep, yep, I'm all about that. But so is that adversity. They are both from his power to control and design your life. And here's, here's my problem. I am very quick to see God's providence when things fall the direction I want them to fall. And I can barely see it in seasons of adversity. And that is sad. So what do I end up doing? I get impatient and proud and I demand from God that I deserve better. And I forget that he's the one that named it all, that he knows what is in man. He knows my days are few. He calls me to live in wisdom. And he lets me know when I'm acting like a fool. Both prosperity and adversity are from the hand of God. Folks, let me just say this real quick. That is why we as a church take the strongest stand possible against the theology that says in an insisting way, God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Because you cannot derive that statement from this passage of scripture. Both the hard times and the good times are from God. So be careful to say that the hard is bad. It is part of God's sovereign plan of work in your life. You know, the, a man named Job 
went through incredibly difficult circumstances and he demanded an audience with God. He demanded a hearing with God and God comes swooping in. We don't know exactly how this happens, but God kind of swoops in and says, hey, Job, do you ever think about this? Do you know where deer give birth? Do you know where the whales sleep at night? Do you know? And it made it all Job. And Job in the middle of his fit of rage is silenced. And as he hears about God's sovereignty, his divine providence, what happens? Job goes like this. He says, I put my hand over my mouth. I and I have people say this to me all the time. Oh, but Pastor Tim, when I stand before God, I got a question for him. Listen, you be real careful. You be real careful. Because with that attitude, you may never stand before him. And secondly, when you do, you will be so overwhelmed by his glory, you will see his providence. You will see that he is sovereign. And you will put your hand over your mouth and you'll say, God, I surrender. I surrender. What divinely appointed adversity are you facing today that you need to surrender to the plan of God? What prosperity has God brought into your life that you are taking credit for? And you're tempted to be proud. And when you're proud, you tend to be angry and hurtful. The wise know that they should joyfully trust a sovereign God, knowing that he is in control, knowing that Romans 8, 28, that all things in this context, all things, good and bad, work together for good to those that love God, who have been called according to his purpose. Folks, let that just soak in that. In, midst, in the midst of that big question in your mind as you face that rather substantial adversity. Just confess to God, God, I, I was wrong. You're in control. Live wisely and trust a sovereign God. And the only other thought I want to end with is this. James mentioned earlier, we celebrate Christmas and Easter. And those are both good or bad days. They're good days, right? Do you realize that neither of those days saves you? Neither of those days redeems. The birth of Christ was not enough to carry the price and weight of your sin. No, he had to go further. He had to pursue further. The hardest day in history was part of God's providential plan that the son freely embraced the son who did not come to be served, but to serve humbly by giving his life a freedom price for many. So the hardest day in Christ's life, boldly and purposely embraced in the acknowledgement of your sin becomes your best day. Do you see? The day that you realize that I am a broken sinner, I am in debt to a God in a way to God in a way that I cannot pay that debt, but the Son of God gave his life as a freedom price for many, gave it according to the will of God. That's why Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did he say? Father, let this cup pass from me. It doesn't look good. Not my will, but yours be done. 
to the cross, to it is finished. To my sin debt is paid in full. The Bible tells us that God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Folks, that's providence. For your saving, God gave his son so that you could be forgiven. So that the worst day in Jesus' life, when you come as a sinner, is the best day in your life. So be careful. When you're hit with adversity, don't say, oh, this is bad. And when prosperity comes, praise God. No. Thank you, Lord. I surrender. Help me to handle this prosperity properly, this blessing. And help me not to be proud in the struggle. Help me to be humble, to patiently trust you. And in that circumstance of seeing your sovereignty and your providence, to respond seeking wisdom, trusting that everything is under your control, whether good or bad. May God grant us a change of perspective for his glory. Father, we pray that as we close our service this morning with a song of praise, that we will lay hold on truth that can change us forever. God, forgive our impatience. For those here this morning that have never trusted you, have never seen that the worst day in Christ's life was the best day in their life, would you grant them the capacity to see that today? to confess their sin and trust in you. And Lord, if there's someone here this morning is overwhelmed by adversity, I pray that you would maybe even draw them to come to the front and pray and say, God, help me to see the good in what you're doing for your glory. And Lord, I pray these blessings, I pray these outcomes for the glory of your name. And all God's people said, amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness. New every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. What love can remember? What love can remember? No wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. What patience would wait? 
Patience would wait as we constantly roam. What Father so tender is calling us home. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness. They are many, His mercy is more. What riches, what riches of kindness he lavished on us his blood was the payment his life was the cost we stood neath the dead we could never afford our sins they are many his mercy is more praise the His mercy is more, stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. Praise the Lord, His mercy is more. And new every morn, our sins they are many. His mercy is more. Oh, our sins they are many. His mercy is more. Yes, God, we thank you for that mercy that you grant to us and give to us. It's only by providence that we're even here right now in this building, Lord. Whether we believe in you as our Savior or not, Lord, we are here because of providence. You called us. You drew us to yourself. You put someone in our lives, Lord, that spoke the gospel, spoke truth, truth to us. And so here we are. I know there are people here probably as well that don't know you, Lord, or are resisting. But it's providence that they're here as well. Nothing is outside of your control. As we sang today, who can stop the Lord Almighty? Our God is in the heavens. He does what pleases him. God, we thank you that uh, we can be together this morning, that our community can come together and sing your praises, Lord, and hear your word. God, may we now go out from this place into our weeks, Lord, being little, little lights, Lord, of this community, Lord, of your gospel of the truth. May we come back again next week, Lord, uh, excited to be together and to sing again and to hear your word, Lord. So use us this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a nice week.